Uh, before we dive into the message today, uh, this has been uh, an important week, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, some of you watched pretty closely the Derek Chauvin trial as he was uh, convicted of the murder of George Floyd. And I know that some of you are like, can we just get past this? And yet for others of you, it was very important. And I want to speak to this because I think for our church to truly be a place of grace, we remember that, that people who lose loved ones grieve. Even, even if their loved ones were maybe not always acting in the best way. And people of color, they, they have a different experience than many of us have. And law enforcement, law enforcement has to make split decisions just like that. And that's not easy. And to kind of sort of state the obvious, uh, I have never been in law enforcement. I've never been a person of color. But part of what it means for us to be a place of grace is we listen to each other. And we seek to understand. And we pray for one another. So I want to ask you to join me right now. And I want us to pray for law enforcement officers who face these critical decisions. I want us to pray for people who have lost uh, people they love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know we are not a perfect people, and we know that we need your grace. I do pray for those who are in law enforcement. They have to make such tough decisions every day. They put their lives on the line, give them wisdom. I pray for those who are grieving. Um, Father, for those who, who sometimes see their relatives killed, um, and, and doesn't seem to be a good reason why. There's a lot there, Father, we don't understand. But Father, we want to be your people and we want to love and understand and listen and care. So help us to carry that message with us. Continue a healing work in our land and let us be bearers of light and love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we're in this message series entitled Decide or Default. It's based on this simple idea, either you will decide to develop your soul or you will default the decision to someone else. You'll let somebody else make that decision for you. And we've been asking a series of questions to guide us in our soul development. We've been asking questions like, will I be spiritually curious? Uh, will I follow someone? Who will I identify with? Those are important questions. And today, a real important question who will I love? And the reason I think this is an important question is because we often mishear the question. When we think about who will I love, our first thought goes to romantic love. I don't know, a lot of you, you are instantly thinking about the movie Jerry Maguire, and you are waiting for Tom Cruise one day to walk into your living room and say, you complete me. Okay, bad news, Tom Cruise is not coming. And, and, and the, the flaw in that, you can see, the flaw is that I am gonna depend on you to do some of my soul work. If I'm not complete, then it must be your fault. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, I'm not waiting on Tom Cruise, I'm waiting on Rose, Renee Zellwinger to look at me and just say, just shut up, just shut up. You had me at hello. Yeah, Renee's not going to come to your house either. I just want you to know. This is an idea that we get that love is based on emotion. 
on this, this attraction. And so when that's not there, we think that something's wrong with the person, we need to get the right person. And it goes into all kinds of areas of our life. Some of you wish that you had a different set of children because they don't seem to complete you very much. Some of you actually want a different church because they don't complete you. And there's even people who want a different God because they think God is supposed to do their soul work for them. So it's important that we actually understand what love is. Uh, The philosopher, theologian, Dallas Willard defined love like this. Love is the will to do good. The one who loves promotes the good of the beloved. In other words, if I love you, then I'm actually going to do something for you. I'm going to do something good for you. I, in fact, am going to will and work for good to occur in your life. Now, in our culture, we find it easy to love people who are just like us. People who look like us, vote like us, live around us. People who are in our family, we think those are the easiest people to love. And in fact, we think the hardest people to love are the people who are not like us. And the same thing was true in Jesus' day. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard it said, love your enemy and love your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And you real quickly start to understand why this is such a problem. Because if, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, then the next question is, who's my neighbor? And I know for some of you, you're flashing right now on Mr. Rogers, right? Won't you be my neighbor? Well, who is your neighbor? How do you decide who's in your sphere? You remember there was a a man one time who came up to Jesus. He was a teacher of the law, and he asked Jesus about how to have eternal life. And Jesus said, well, how do you read the law? And the man actually knew the answer. He said in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, right, good, you got the right answer, do that, and you will live. Now, this is the kind of question, the next question is the kind of question that religious people would ask. Because religious people love definitions, because that gives us an excuse. So the man, wanting to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? You almost get the feeling that the guy wants Jesus to define this. Okay, everybody within a five-mile radius of your home is your neighbor. Or every Jew within five miles of your home is your neighbor. Okay, I'm sorry, I can't love you. You live 5.1 miles outside of my home. You hear the absurdity of that, right? And so Jesus wants to help this guy, so he tells him a story. You know this story. It's called the story of the Good Samaritan. There was a man going down from Jerusalem. He fell in among thieves. They robbed him, beat him, left him for dead. A, a, a chief priest from the temple goes by, doesn't help the guy. A Levite goes by, doesn't help the guy. And then a Samaritan shows up. Clarence Jordan was a phenomenal New Testament scholar. He was also one of the founders of Habitat for Humanity. He did a translation called the cotton patch version of the gospel. And he took the story of Jesus and he said it in the American South in the 1950s. And when he retold this story from Luke, he told it where the chief priest was the preacher and the Levite was the song leader and the Samaritan was a black man. 
See, that's the way that Jews actually saw Samaritans. They were a different race. They had strange ways and strange customs. But who is it that helps the man? Well, you know the story. The Samaritan actually stops, binds up the man's wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to the next town, pays for his care. And when Jesus finishes this amazing short story, he asks the teacher of the law this question. Which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? You don't, you don't have to have a degree in literature to understand the answer to that question, do you? You know who it is. And Jesus is teaching us something pretty profound about love, that love actually helps. That's what love does. Bob Goff spoke in our town not too long ago, actually says, this is what love is. Love does. I can say I love you, but until I do something for you, I'm not really loving you, am I? Love helps. And so when Jesus asked this teacher of the law this question, how does the teacher of the law answer? I want you to notice something real interesting. He doesn't say, well, it's the Samaritan. He actually kind of goes around it. And he, says, he says, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I don't know this, it's not in the Bible, but I think the guy was gritting his teeth when he said it. Who do you think the neighbor was? Oh, the guy who actually helped him, the Samaritan. And Jesus says, yeah, go be just like the Samaritan. Go be like a guy who's not like you. See, see, that's what love really does. If you want to love your neighbor, you actually help them. You actually promote their good. You don't worry so much about differences. But Jesus is telling us that loving your neighbor is helping people who have a need, which means everybody who has a need is potentially your neighbor. But now let's go back to our original text, back to Matthew chapter five. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But the problem of definition crops up again right now, because if I'm having to define who my neighbor is, well, who is my enemy? And here's the trouble. Most of us define an enemy as somebody who is not like us. That's what's happening in our country today, right? If, if, if you don't vote like I vote, if you don't believe like I believe, you're the enemy. And when we start to label people as the enemy, let me tell you what we do. We connect dots in a way that supports our impression of other people. I wrote this story a few weeks ago in the paper. You may have read it, but it's a good story. I'm going to tell it again. So it was kind of cold. I'm getting gas at Walmart. I'm sitting in the truck with my window down because I want to hear the pump click off. And this black guy comes up, and he... Um, he, he, he sees I've got feed in the back of my truck, and he says, I grew up on a farm. He starts telling me about growing up on a farm. I'm thinking, that's great, and this is, I'm not proud of this. I'm thinking, what does he want? And yeah, pretty soon, here comes the story. I'm out of work. I just came here. I'm a painter. As soon as, the, you know, I'm going to get picked up, and I just need a little money so I have some place to stay. 
could you help me out? Now, I know the Lord loves a cheerful giver, but I'm not always cheerful. So sometimes I'm just grumpy. And I knew what I was supposed to do, so I reached over my wallet, and I pulled out a $20 bill, and I gave him the $20 bill. He said, thank you, thank you, man, thank you. Oh, you're a real blood. God bless you, brother. Like, yeah, God bless you. And he goes off across the parking lot. I hear the pump click off. I get out of my truck. I put the nozzle up, get back in my truck, put it in gear, start to drive off, reach for my phone. Can't find my phone. I'm not proud of this. But the first thought I had, the black guy took it. Now, let me tell you what's wrong with that. He was never in my truck. He didn't reach his hand in the window. There's some old prejudice in me that I thought was gone, still there. Somehow he got my phone. I could see him across the parking lot. I was about to whip my truck around and run him down. And I felt the Holy Spirit nudge me and say, stop your truck, get out and look. So I stopped my truck. Made everybody in the Walmart parking lot mad. I just stopped. Got out. I was sitting on my phone. Be careful how you think about other people. You may cast them as the enemy when they're not your enemy at all. That's why I think what Jesus says next is so important. It is so radical. And we who've heard it so often, we forget how radical it is. No other religious leader in history says what Jesus is about to say. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Do good. Pray for them. Even if they persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying not only does love help, love helps whoever. Love your enemies means you promote their good. You want good for them. Now, you still resist evil, of course. But there's this interesting phrase in, in verse 45 that God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. God causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. And, and what Jesus is reminding us is God wants good for people that drive you crazy. God wants good for the people that are not like you. And so God is telling us to love our enemies. And Jesus, Jesus makes it personal. He says, pray for them. How many of you are praying for an enemy? Now, I know, if you grew up in church, you say, well, I don't have any enemies. I just have people in my life that I say, bless your heart to. Here's the truth. If, you, if there's anybody in your life you wish would just go away, got anybody like that? I just wish they'd go away. Maybe one of your customers. Just wish they'd go away. Maybe one of your coworkers. I just wish it would go away. Maybe one of your in-laws. I wish they would go away. Even happens in marriage. I just wish he'd go away. Kind of sad. I even know parents who wish one of their children would go away. 
hard to believe, but true. But if you have anybody in your life that you just wish would go away, you've got an enemy. And Jesus says, pray for them. I read this verse around the first of the year, and I really felt convicted by God that I should start praying for people who had done some hurtful things. And so I made a list. I added it to my prayer list. I call it the Matthew 5, list. None of you are on it. But there's just some people in my life who've done some hurtful things, and I pray for them. I pray for them every day. And when I started, I, I, I'll be honest, again, I'm not proud of this. My prayers were pretty raw. Lord, I just want to pray for old so-and-so. Lord, you know their heart is hard, and you need to, Lord, break that heart. You need to... Lord, you need to just move in their life with some power and smite them with your power. And y'all ever pray? God says it's okay to pray that way, but just don't stay praying that way. And here's what I've noticed over the months that I have prayed for these people, my prayers have changed. I'm starting to see that these people act the way they do for a reason, they've got some pain, they've got a story that's not my story that I have to understand. And I'll tell you something really is striking. Some of these people who've done some really hurtful things, they're not doing them right now since I started praying for them. Now, I can't tell you if you start praying for people that they will quit doing hurtful things. I, I, I just simply can't tell you if you start praying for the people who persecute you, who make your life tough, it'll change you. It'll change your perspective change how you think about it. So love people who disagree with you. Love the people who get under your skin. Now, if you're going to love like this, you can't rely on emotion, right? Because you can never just say, you know, that person is just gets on my last nerve and I feel this surge of affection for them. That's just not going to happen, right? Nobody even thinks that way. In fact, here's what I know. I know it's true about you because I know it's true about me. The people in my life I love the most, sometimes I don't feel a lot of love for them. No pointing fingers to anybody sitting, you're sitting with. But it's true, right? I mean, I, 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 believe me, I love my kids. I love my wife. But I don't always feel it. So love cannot be just emotion. Love's a decision. It's part of your soul that actually decides, I'm going to do this. I'm going to want good for this person. And so if you want to love, if you want to serve both your neighbor and your enemy, you need a standard. What does this look like? Jesus gives it to us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus lays out clear instructions about the standard of love. Because here's what I know about you. And I know it about me. I'm going to tend to want to do the least I can do and call it love, right? You know this. When you, you had a fight with your spouse and, and they were saying, I wish you'd kind of help a little more around the house. And you said, I picked up a sock yesterday. Okay, what you're doing is you're loving when it's convenient for you. So listen to what Jesus says. It's the standard for love. In verse 12, chapter 15 of Luke, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. What's Jesus saying to us? First thing he's telling us is, I have a command for you. This is not a suggestion. Jesus is not saying to his followers, you would be a really good idea if you guys loved each other. He's saying, this is what I command you. And maybe that's where you struggle. You see, you're still thinking of love as this romantic feeling thing, but Jesus is saying, no, this is an action. This is will. This is a decision. Maybe it will help, it, help you if you frame it this way. Refusing to love someone is refusing to follow Jesus. It is like standing before Jesus and saying, you know, if it means I've got to love that person, you go on ahead without me. You really want to do that? Is that really the way you want to live? Jesus says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. If you're going to love, love as the way Jesus loves, and that means you lay down your life. You actually say, okay, I'm not so concerned about me, I'm concerned about you. I'm going to focus on you. That's what it really means to love. How did Jesus do this? He offered his life as a gift. He died for the sins of the world. He died for your sins. And he rose to life to give you power to live this new life. That's what it means. True love is a gift. And there's so many places to apply this. But let me, let me just focus on one. Let me just focus on marriage. A lot of people get hung up with the Christian idea of marriage because they, they read passages that Paul wrote when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And they think, I ain't going to submit to no man. And, and, and then you go on and you see Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. So let me just kind of unpack this for you a little bit about what it means then to offer love as a gift. For women, to submit to your, your husbands does not mean that he sits in the lazy boy and says, woman, get me some sweet tea and rub my feet. That's not what it means. It means you're going to try to figure out how to serve him. At the same time, he is going to try to figure out how to lay down his life for you. Christian marriage is different than contractual marriage. No, it's just so important. Right now in our culture, we get the idea that marriage means that you love each other, you can commit to each other, and that's great. Christian marriage means we are in a race to serve each other. So I'm going to try to figure out how I can serve you the best I can. I'm not going to worry about things getting even. I'm not going to worry about are my needs being met. That's important. Don't get me wrong. But what we're really doing is saying I'm going to focus on how do I serve and love you. True love is a gift. Wouldn't you like to be married that way? Yeah, you would. That's actually the deep longing of your heart. And this is why Christians believe that marriage takes your whole life. That's why we say, for long as you both shall live, because you don't get this the first year. 
or the second or the 15th. I've been married 35 years. I'm not an expert yet. I have met some couples who've been married 60 years. I think they're getting close. It's real cute. One of them was in the first service. I was talking about this and they just kind of leaned toward each other. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like that to be your story? Taking us 60 years to figure out how to serve each other, love each other, help each other. And Jesus goes on and he says, I no longer call you servants. Because the servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. What Jesus is doing here is he's defining the relationship. And he's saying, look, I don't want you to think of me as some harsh master that you're afraid of. Instead, I want you to think of our relationship kind of like a friendship, where there is loyalty, where there's attachment, where there is this sense that we belong together. I think a lot of us have the wrong idea about God. We think when God asks us to do something, he's being mean. It just takes something real real common. A lot of, even Jesus followers have trouble with this whole idea when God says, I want you to tithe your money. And we think, gosh, that's kind of mean. God has taken my money away from me. Okay. (laughs) You realize God wants you to do this not because he needs your money, because you need to learn how to be unselfish. How many selfish people do we have in the room? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, you're out of touch. And if you're watching online, you didn't raise your hand, somebody is looking at you right now saying you should have raised your hand. We all struggle with selfishness, right? Well, how do you attack selfishness? There's two ways, you serve and you give. And so God is not asking you to give because he's mean. He's asking you to give because he wants something good for you. He wants your soul to develop. He wants you to learn how to be generous and learn the joy of giving, which is greater than the joy of receiving. That's what Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than receive. And you actually understand this is the gospel in miniature, according to Martin Luther. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave. His one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The life that you want, the life of the ages happens when you receive God's gift. And now there's something else significant. Jesus says, what the Father shares with me, I share with you. The problem is most of us, when we think about the Father's knowledge, we want to know why, right? God, why did you let those people die? God, why did you let that happen? God, why haven't I won the lottery? You know, the things we want to know are not the things we need to know. I want you to imagine how you would live your life if you knew you were profoundly and deeply loved. You didn't have to prove yourself to anybody. You didn't have to prove yourself that you're worthy. If somebody was mean or cruel to you, you could say, well, okay, but I know I'm deeply loved. See, that's why having Jesus as your Savior matters, because then you tap into God's inexhaustible source of love. And if that love is flowing into your life, then you can love other people, even people who don't want good for you, you can still want good for them, because you've got an inexhaustible supply of love. That's what Jesus wants you to know. 
That, that's why Jesus' friend John wrote a letter, First John, in 1 John 4, 18. He says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, every time I'm afraid that I won't have enough, that I won't be enough, that you don't love me, that you reject me, that you don't like me, I can be reminded my heavenly father loves me. So so here's just sort of the thing. When you're afraid, pray, remind me, Father, that I'm loved. Boy, wouldn't that change things? You're sitting there in the doctor's office waiting for the doctor to come in and give you the test results. You can just say, Father, just remind me I'm loved. No matter what happens, good, bad, I'm loved. That's what you need to know. That's what will change your life. And Jesus isn't done explaining this whole different way of loving. He says, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in the name of the Father will be given to you. I want you to listen to Jesus' message. He says, you were chosen. Now, for every one of us who endured the humiliation on the playground at recess, when we chose up teams and the team captains argued over who had to take you, here's what I want you to, to get. Our Heavenly Father says, you're my first pick. I choose you. I choose you. I know this is cheesy. You ever seen the movie musical Grease? Now, don't get pictures of Olivia Newton-John in your head. I just, I can imagine our Heavenly Father singing, you're the one that I want. Do, do, do. Makes you laugh, doesn't it? Because that's what love does. You can laugh and know that your heavenly father wants you. That's the best news there is. And, and, and Jesus loves us. He says, I've chosen you because I've got a purpose for your life. We talk all the time about how everybody here has a purpose. And your purpose is to go share. Go share your resources. Go share your story. Go share your spiritual gifts. God has something he wants you to do in the world. You're not just here by accident. You need to find out what that is. And Jesus finishes off this section by saying, and whatever you ask the Father in my name, it'll be given to you. Now, let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean you can say, okay, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I want a Ford F-150 King Ranch 4x4 by tomorrow. That's not going to happen. That's not the way God works. What Jesus is saying when you ask in my name, means you are asking for the things that Jesus wants. What does Jesus want? He wants you to know you're loved and he wants you to love. So when you ask in Jesus' name, God answers that prayer. Almost no one in this room will remember this person. Her name was Miss Eileen Brumfield. Miss Brumfield was a charter member of our church. And she, um, uh, when I, I came as pastor, she was still living. She was she was very old, very frail, but she came to church. And I remember after our church began to grow, I had this incredible season of growth and our numbers were climbing and it was exciting. And Ms. Brumfield came up to me and she said, Pastor, I've been praying for 30 years for our church to grow. And God's answered my prayer. Wouldn't it be cool if you prayed for something for 30 years and saw God answer it? 
I know most of us, we want God to answer it right away. I tell you, Miss Brumfield was faithful. She asked for what Jesus would ask for. And, and can I just say this? This is sort of a, a, just an aside. Sometimes people say to me, well, how, how, how big do you want Alice Drive to get? That's a dumb question. I don't say that's a dumb question. I'm tempted. Because Jesus never says, well, you know, this is about the right size for church. What Jesus says is, I want you to go and bear witness, and I want you to make disciples. And so as long as there are people that need to hear about Jesus, that's what we want to do. And so how big do we need to get? Well, when we've reached everybody we can possibly reach, we're big enough. When will that be? Are you praying that that's what will happen for our church? And you say, well, I'm just afraid if we get that big, nobody will know who I am. Hey, remember, you're chosen by God. And if you have that security, you don't have to be afraid. So what's our big idea today? Big idea. Sum it up. You need to decide to love according to the model and the command of Jesus. You need to say, okay, I'm going to decide to love this way. I don't know exactly how, I don't know exactly when, but I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do. I'm going to love people. I'm going to love them the way that Jesus loves them. I'm going to try to figure out how to help them, how to lay down my life for them. And whoever Jesus brings in my life, I'm going to love them. I'm going to give you two pieces of practical advice. First piece of practical advice. You need to practice. You need to practice loving. That's why we encourage you to get in a life group. We want you to get in a life group so that you can practice loving people who are different than you. We make sure there is one annoying person in every life group. And if you think about your life group, you're going, yeah, I know who it is. And if you're in a life group and you go, I don't know who the annoying person is, it's you. Okay, we really don't do that, right? It's just in a life group, you, you have a safe space where you can learn to listen to people who think differently than you. You can learn to love people. You can learn to understand. You can learn to love like Jesus. And let me tell you, it's easier to do in a life group than to say, well, I'll just practice that on my family. If you'll learn to love the people in your life group, it'll help you with the people in your family. If you try to practice on your family, that doesn't really work that well. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because we feel so vulnerable to our family. Let me give you a second piece of advice. A lot of you have seen the, the bracelets that have WWJD, what would Jesus do? I want to encourage you to change that. I want you to change it to this. HWJL. It's not quite as catchy, but it means how would Jesus love? Every person you see, you think, how would Jesus love? How would Jesus love? How would Jesus love my kids today? He may not buy them every toy in Walmart. How would Jesus love my spouse today? How would Jesus love that guy I work with? How would Jesus love my in-laws? How would Jesus love my neighbor down the street whose husband just died? How would Jesus love? If you really want to know how Jesus loves, it means you're going to have to read the Gospels. You're going to have to study this. You're going to have to figure it out. One of my heroes in life is a man named Will Campbell. He's gone to be with the Lord. Uh, Will Campbell was a, a Southern Baptist preacher. He was a, 
uh, real active in the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. A friend of his was named Jonathan Daniels. He was an Episcopalian seminary student. And in 1965, Jonathan Daniels went down to Alabama to help register black voters. After he had helped one group of black voters, he went with this group of black people to the one store in town that would serve both black and white people to get a a Coke. And when they got to this little grocery store, there was an off-duty deputy sheriff who was not even paid. He just wore a badge. And the man had a shotgun. And the man says, y'all need to get on out of here. And Jonathan said, we just want to go in the store and get something to drink. And before there was any other conversation, that off-duty deputy sheriff, a guy named Tom Coleman, raised his shotgun and pointed it at a young black woman named Ruby Smalls. But before he could pull the trigger, Jonathan Daniels pushed Ruby out of the way. And the trigger was pulled And Jonathan caught the full blast of buckshot. And he died. Will Campbell, his friend, was a few counties away. And when news reached him, Will was obviously grieved. But he was also mad. You can understand. How would you feel if your friend was shot down? And Will, being a son of rural Mississippi, understood how to vent his anger in very colorful language. You know this language? When you call people's parentage into question. When you say things about them that are pretty raw and cutting, and he was cussing Tom Coleman for all he was worth. And with Will was a friend of his named P.D. East. P.D. was not a Christian, in fact, he was an atheist. And so while Will is ranting and raving about how Tom Coleman ought to be strung up and, and shot just the way that he shot Jonathan Daniel in cold blood, P.D. East, this atheist, said, well, I thought you said that Jesus loved everybody, even his enemies. And Will Campbell said in that moment, something connected in his soul that had never connected before. And though he had studied the Gospels, learned Greek, read theology, for the first time in his life, he realized that not only did Jesus love Jonathan Daniel, the man who gave his life for someone else, Jesus also loved Tom Coleman who did the murder just as much. And until you understand that, you really don't understand the love of God at all. So if you really want to follow Jesus, you need to learn to love like him. I don't know how this message has hit you. Some of you might say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And God is putting right now in my mind the name of somebody I need to love that I just really don't want to love. Welcome to the gospel. Start praying for him. You can start today. It'd be a good thing to do.
Maybe you're not a Christian, and this is one of the reasons why. Maybe you say, well, you know, I'd like to follow Jesus, but there's some people in my life I don't want to love. And I get that. I totally understand. But I just want to ask you this question. Would Jesus' love make a difference in your life? I think it will. To have the inexhaustible love of our Heavenly Father who would say, even if you were the only person on earth, I would still send my son to die for you. I think you'd love the difference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time to share just about love and about knowing your love and having it in our lives and and then loving other people the way you love them. For all of us, Father, who are followers, help us to live out the command to love each other the way you've loved us. And Father, for anyone who's watching this, anyone, Father, who is in the room, I pray that today they would realize that they need to learn to love like Jesus. And they can only do that when they have Jesus in their life. Help them accept his gift of grace and peace and love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.